What's cooking, everybody? It's Monday, July 20th. We're still sweating our asses off because the heat's getting even worse here in New York. And this is the Poor Couples Food Guide Deep Dish Podcast, where we do a deep dive on all your favorite foods. I'm your host, Poor Couples Food Guide Eric, aka The Goose, aka Mr. Burnside. And with me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Poor Couples Food Guide Meg, aka Lay Skunk, aka Sniffles. Hello. And together, we are the Poor Couple. We hope you're hungry for some tasty knowledge facts, because today it is on like motherfucking Donkey Kong. Your main course today will be banana bread. Okay, it is definitely really hot in here. I know we complained about this all last episode, but if you want some context for how hot it is in New York this week, Last week when we were complaining about it being too hot in here, it was maybe like 80 degrees in the apartment. This week, it's been like 85 all day today. Yeah, it's so hot. Somehow it got even hotter. The humidity, I think, is less, but it, it's still hot, especially when we, again, have to turn off the fan and close the windows. You know what, though? I won't complain too much because at least the humidity is breaking, like you said. We went camping over the weekend, and let's just say it was like, I felt like we were in a swamp despite the fact there were no marshlands anywhere around us. Like, you know that feeling when just every piece of fabric that you touch feels like it's been dunked in water? That was the level of humidity we were dealing with while camping over the weekend. Yeah, it was super damp. It is what is known as the dog days of summer, which I guess is appropriate because we have Charlie here with us right now, Charlie the Westie. Go check out his Instagram, as we like to point out, because dogs have Instagrams now. It's 2020. Not everything is terrible. We did take him camping with us, too. He was a very good boy. I was very proud of him. He was very good. He didn't steal any food. He didn't get into any trouble. Uh, we we cooked a lot of yummy campfire food. We, we had some hamburgers. We had some hot dogs. We made some campfire pancakes. Everything tastes better when you cook it over a campfire. Like, I, I don't think there's anything you could make that wouldn't taste better with, like, that smoky campfire grill, like, flavor added to it. Actually, that's, like, Stephen Reckling. He, that, there's, there's this guy, uh, I guess he's, like, a celebrity chef. Like, he's, like, PBS-level celebrity chef. He is obsessed with, like, smoking foods. Like, he smoke. He posted an Instagram story a couple weeks ago where he found a way to smoke ice cream. <laughs> He took like he took ice cream, wrapped it up in foil, and he put it into a freaking smoker. And he smoked it for like two minutes. And then when it came out, he said it was like it tasted like uh like a like a brown bourbon vanilla kind of like flavor. And it was just like regular, like, I don't know, Turkey Hill vanilla ice cream or something. So yeah, that guy, he's a freaking magician. So go check him out. He he's all over the place. Steven Reichlin, R-A-I-C-H-L-E-N, I think is his last name. He's cool though. He's also the master of just touching stuff on the grill with his bare ass hands. He, like I think his hands are made of asbestos. Yeah, so many times we'll be watching his show, and he just reaches into like open flames and just like turns the food over with his bare hands. He's like grabbing cast iron skillets without any potholders. The guy, he's a fucking animal. But yeah, he's really cool. Like uh, I don't know if you have any PBS channels, check out some of his shows. They're they're a lot of fun. And uh, oh, what's the, what is this week's Friday food? Actually, speaking of food. Uh, this week's Friday food is karage and yaki udon. Oh, yeah, karage. We got to do an episode about karage someday. Yeah. If you're not aware, karage is just Japanese fried chicken. Because in traditional Japanese fashion, they take something created by the West and they just perfect the fuck out of it. 
They, it's kind of like popcorn chicken, but like the chicken pieces are marinated beforehand and then like they fry them in cornstarch or potato starch. Oh, it's so good. And it's then so good. Yaki udon, you know, if you've ever had udon noodles before, they're like thick rice noodles. Or no, they're not rice they're noodles. They're, they're wheat noodles. Yeah, they uh, basically stir fry them until they get like nice and like caramelized, like soy sauce and stuff. So yeah, good combo. We had that at a like an izakaya style bar in New York City a couple years ago, and that place was really cool. I think it was called Azasu. They had like sumo wrestling on the TV, and like we we got sake and we got yaki udon and karage, like we mentioned. That place, we got to go back to that place when we get back to the city someday. Yeah, the place was really chill. It was cool. All right, that's enough appetizers for this week. Let's move on to this week's main course. Banana bread is a type of bread made from bananas. Well, that about wraps it up for today's episode. (laughs) Just kidding. I fucking imagine. Maybe when we get sick of doing this, we can do that. Anyway, seriously though, banana bread is a sweet type of quick bread that obviously features bananas as one of the main ingredients. Note, as we mentioned in previous episodes, this is a sweet bread, not sweet bread. Sweet bread is like some sort of fucking cheap pancreas or calf's liver or I don't even freaking remember. It's some weird shitty organ that no one should ever eat on the face of the earth. Some asshole decided to call that sweet bread, even though there is just legit sweet tasting breads out there that are, you know, bread and not fucking meat. No, this, like I said, this is a sweet tasting bread. And as we said, it's a quick bread, similar to our very first episode of Deep Dish, where we featured Irish soda bread. Basically, that means it uses chemical leavening instead of yeast, and you can sort of bake it in maybe, you know, 30, 40 minutes without rising, and it goes pretty quick. So, I want to go more into this, but, you know, it's banana bread. It's it's an American staple. It's almost on par with apple pie at this point. I don't know how to better describe it. Skunk, you like banana bread, right? Why don't you give us a play-by-play? Uh, well, <clears throat> you see, it's a bread, like pumpkin bread or zucchini bread. But it's made with bananas. But it's not like banana chocolate chip pancakes where the bananas are just sliced. In banana bread, they're all mushed up and unrecognizable as bananas. Also, I only really tend to like my mom's banana bread because, as I'm sure will come up a few times during this episode, I don't really like bananas. Oh, I'm well aware that you don't like bananas. I do like bananas. I'm not, I don't love bananas, but... Anytime we end up with bananas, I'm the only one that'll eat them in this house. And if I don't eat them fast enough, then they uh, they tend to go bad pretty quick. But we'll get to that later on in the episode. But yeah, banana bread is interesting in terms of baking recipes since it utilizes, you know, mashed up bananas as one of the main ingredients. So they add sweetness, starch, and they add their banana flavor, which keeps the bread moist. It's also worth noting that when you make banana bread, you're supposed to use bananas that are overly ripe, like so ripe that they're almost beyond saving. Yeah, suffice to say, banana bread is its just a tasty, sweet kind of, you know, banana bread. It's literally banana bread. It's really damn simple and it tastes good and it ranges from hearty to desserty, but there's a few different variables that, you know, refer to those different variations. And there's a lot of things that we have to cover with its origins, so let's dive into the origin story of today's dish. The origin. 
origins of banana bread date back to the turn of the 20th century. Surprisingly, but also kind of unsurprisingly, this dish has only been around since like the early 1900s, with the first recipes only appearing widespread in the 1930s. You know, much like hamburgers, this, this dish is only about a century old. I say because on one hand, it seems like such an easy food to come up with, so you might have thought that it's been around longer than it has, but then on the other hand, bananas also weren't really a they didn't hit the big time until the late 1800s when refrigerators were invented. Like, until then, bananas were this rare, exotic fruit that most people outside of the tropical regions never really seen or heard of. And when they were used for recipes, they were mostly just a garnish. Even then, they were still obscure until the early 1900s when the aforementioned refrigerators were put into ships and that sort of became a thing. After that, bananas became widespread available. It's weird to think about, like, being amazed by a banana they're so common these days it's hard to imagine them as being rare yeah i mean i guess it makes sense you think about people's perspective at the time like you know all this time like most americans they were used to fruits that all kind of looked pretty similar like apples and pears quinces and peaches like they all you know they have the same overall makeup they're round they got a thin skin that you can like you know you need a tool to peel them apart and then suddenly Somebody just shows up with this weird neon yellow dong-shaped fruit covered in a thick, inedible skin. But then also, you could peel that skin apart by hand? And then on top of that, like, the flesh inside, it's soft and creamy like pudding. Then even then, the damn thing ripens and it goes bad in, like, less than a week. They must have been freaking terrified of those things back then. It's like the old-timey equivalent of, like, white people being both disgusted and fascinated by sushi in the 90s. But, hell, with enough time, all food goes mainstream eventually. Well, except for sweetbread. But that seems like a win for all of us, because sweetbread can go to hell. Interestingly, bananas originally came from Southeast Asia, despite their association with South America today. The earliest cultivars of bananas, they're, they're traced to Indonesia, Malaysia, and Australia, believe it or not. About 10,000 years ago, tribes in Papua New Guinea domesticated early bananas, and they started farming them as a crop. From that point, bananas moved over to Africa around 400 AD. Eventually, the Portuguese brought them over to the Americas from Africa in like 1600. And then once the banana made it over to South America, they had like a modest popularity with major plantations starting up in countries like Brazil and Jamaica. As mentioned, bananas were mostly unknown to North Americans and especially Europeans until the late 1800s, bordering on the 1900s, which takes us back to the invention of commercial scale refrigeration. Yeah, so as we all know, bananas have a tendency to spoil pretty quickly. Like, how many times have you bought, like, the perfect banana at the store? Like, perfect firmness, it's nice and, like, bright cartoon yellow, only to, like, come out to your kitchen and you just find a disgusting brown turd sitting in your fruit bowl, like, two days later? Yeah, I've been there way too many times. Like I said, I'm the only person who eats bananas in this house, so if I don't eat them, they are turning to shit pretty quick. Hell, one of the most frustrating times this happened with us it was actually the opposite, believe it or not. We were trying to make plantain waffles, because plantains actually have a lot of starch in them, and this required ripe, soft plantains, which, like, you know, they mashed together and made it like a starchy batter. So we stuck them in a bag, we waited all week, and they didn't ripen. So then we stuck, like, a really ripe banana in the bag with them to speed up the process, and then after another week, it still didn't look like they had made much progress. 
So then we just gave up and we tried peeling them open and then, you know, the skin had somehow fused into the flesh and like petrified onto it and, but then the flesh was too ripe underneath the barely ripe skin. It was a freaking paradox. It made no sense. Needless to say, those waffles came out shitty. Yeah, they weren't great. Plantain's best application remains tostones, but to quote Alton Brown, that's another episode. Yeah, in case you're wondering, plantains and bananas, it's very confusing. Plantains are a type of banana, but not all bananas are plantains. Plantains are like a kind of... There's no official term, I think, for plantains. I think it, it varies from region to region, but generally speaking, plantains are usually more starchy, less sweet than regular, like, you know, fruity sweet bananas that you just, you know, give to monkeys and, like, throw banana peels in Mario Kart and shit. Those are bananas. Plantains are, like, the ones that you see at, like, uh, like Latino restaurants where they, like, fry them up and they're sometimes, like, they're fried into tostones, like she just mentioned. Tostones, if you don't know what those are, they're basically just flat french fries that's what they they taste like french fries even though they're made of plantains and they're the best anyway in case you're wondering why bananas specifically ripen faster in bags well that's because as bananas ripen they release something called ethylene which is a type of gas other bananas start ripening when they detect that ethylene gas and it just starts off a mass ripening chain reaction so if you stick a bunch of them into a bag, they just kind of hotbox one another with ethylene gas, and it's a good way to get your bananas turned to absolute shit real quick if that's what you want. On the other hand, that's why you see that little like life hack trick thing of wrapping plastic around the severed stem and the top of a banana when they get cut. Any bruises, cuts, broken skin, it triggers that banana to release a ton of the stuff at once. So if you seal it up with plastic, theoretically it should help stave off that process a little bit longer. You know, something I never knew until we researched this episode, apparently bananas are radioactive. No, no, I'm not kidding around here. This is, this is literally not a joke. Apparently, bananas contain uh, a decent amount of potassium-40, which is actually a naturally radioactive element that has a half-life and everything. Now, now, before you health nuts start throwing your bananas out the window and soapbox about how we're all eating poison, this fun fact comes with a pretty big asterisk. While bananas are technically radioactive, the amount of radioactivity they actually emit is also, like, ridiculously small. Like, so small as in it's, like, a fraction of a percent of the rest of the random radioactive material you're exposed to on a given day. So, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, no mutant gorilla monsters for all of us. I knew there was a reason I didn't like bananas. I was just saving myself from radiation poisoning. Anyway, because a banana's extremely irritating ripening process, they couldn't really be shipped to far-off places very effectively. Fruit would just arrive too ripe or rotten, and then even then, the fruits that survived the voyage would end up overly ripe by the time they made it to consumers. Side note here, I'm, I've done that thing now where I've said a word so much it's lost absolutely all fucking meaning to me. Specifically, I'm talking about the word ripe. Ripe. Ripen, ripe, ripened. What the hell does it even mean? Like, when a fruit is super sugary, it's ready to be eaten, but it's not gross. Like, sometimes you hear people saying something is ripe when it's ready to be used, like it's ripe for the picking. I might say you're pretty ripe after the gym. Weird fucking word. Anyway, that semantics tangent aside. As you can imagine, banana industry exploded after the widespread adaptation of refrigerated cargo ships in the 1860s and 1870s. 
Now, with refrigerators, bananas could be picked and they could be shipped north and they could arrive in an acceptable condition where all these confused Americans could finally give them a shot. One thing we found interesting here was there's actually a really technical method to how bananas are shipped to make sure they're at the correct ripeness when you take them home with you. For starters, the bananas themselves are picked like a month early when they're still green and inedible. From here, they get stuck into refrigeration, are stored and transported, which all takes about three to four weeks. They sit around 55 degrees to keep them from releasing any ethylene gas, and it sort of locks them in a kind of stasis until they're ready to be, well, reactivated. Wake me when you need me. Once the bananas arrive at a distribution center near their destination, they get stored at a slightly higher temperature, around 63 degrees, and are exposed to low levels of ethylene, which basically acts as their wake-up call. Yeah, and from here on out, the bananas are just kind of starting to enter the early stages of ripening, and they get shipped to stores where you find them just starting to turn yellow at that point. Hopefully. It's crazy. Like, who would think it's so complicated to get a fucking banana to your table? Like, I hate how overused this phrase is, but, like, seriously, it, it really makes you think. Like, it's a great example of that whole concept of, like, you know, knowing where your food comes from. It helps you stay grateful and humble when you consider how many people need to do their job correctly just so that you can make your fucking sloppy peanut butter, bacon, banana, Elvis Presley sandwich. And yeah, as mentioned, bananas do need to be overly ripened to be used for banana bread. So because of that, a lot of people actually force them to go ripe like to the point that they're bad. Actually, it's, it's kind of fucked up now that you think about it. Because when you think back to how much work and effort went into making sure those bananas were the perfect ripeness for you to buy, just so you can go, well, shit, these bananas are too good. Throw them in a bag for a week so we can make banana bread. It's kind of weird. To be fair, with the exception of your mom who randomly had bananas in her freezer a couple of weeks ago, I think most people go, shit, these bananas died. Guess I'll make banana bread more than I must enmush in these bananas to make bread. Uh, all right. I guess that's fair. But at this point... We've established one piece of the banana bread origin story puzzle, which is, well, bananas. The other major foodstuff development that led to its rise is none other than the invention of baking soda and baking powder. So, if you listen to the episode about Irish soda bread, we did cover leavening agents before, so we'll just give a real quick refresher on it because chemistry is really boring. So, basically, leaveners are the ingredients that go into baked goods that make your stuff rise in the oven. They create air bubbles, which helps your food poof up, and it gives it a better texture. Without leaveners, food would come out flat and dense and probably feel like you're eating wet cardboard. Now, back in our first episode, we were talking a lot about baking soda, a.k.a. sodium bicarbonate. Today, though, we're going to take a look at baking powder. So basically, sodium carbonate existed in natural forms for centuries. However, the modern manufacturers of baking soda originally created in America in like the 1840s, like we said in our soda bread episode. It was a hit and quickly became a very important chemical leavener in baking. But the problem with baking soda was it had one drawback. Baking soda is a strong alkaline on the pH scale. It's high on the pH scale. So because of that, it tends to have a very bitter flavor. So... In addition to that, it also needs an acidic ingredient to produce bubbles. Like, it needs an acid to combine with it, like buttermilk or vinegar to, like, get added in. Because without that stuff, you'll just end up with a cake that didn't rise and tastes like poison. Yummy. You've probably seen this kind of reaction before. 
If you'll take a quick trip down memory lane and think back to those childhood science experiment days, you probably created one of those volcanoes with vinegar and baking soda. It creates that big foamy mess. Well, basically when you combine an acid and a base, they produce a bunch of carbon dioxide, which is what causes all that foam. You know, fun fact, that chemical reaction is actually the secret behind bath bombs. They're just compacted baking soda and citric acid, so once you throw them into the water, they mix together and they foam up and you get a cool, like, pleasant smelling bath and possibly a cool toy. Yeah, but all that foam and bubbling that happens in the tub with a bath bomb, that's basically what happens inside your cake, which is what causes it to rise and get all light and airy. But bringing it back to the early days of baking soda, sodium bicarbonate was a great invention, but it wasn't perfect. Besides the bitter taste, it left the door open for the concept of, well, what if you could like combine the acid-alkaline reaction into like one baking ingredient instead of having to mix two of them together. Bam! Baking powder, bitches. Baking powder was actually invented in 1843, so not too long after baking soda. It was invented in 1843 by British food chemist Alfred Frederick Bird. <laughs> Holy shit. Side note, what a British name, yeah, Alfred Frederick Bird. <laughs> that's a pretty British name. Uh, but yeah, he created to use in baked goods for his wife, who was actually allergic to yeast. So that's actually really cool of him. He... he set out on this quest to basically be like, you know, uh, it sucks that you can't eat bread, so um, I'm going to invent a way for you to eat bread. <laughs> That's kind of sweet. Uh, he combined, he created a formula that combined baking soda, cream of tartar, and cornstarch as a mixing agent. Interestingly, this early baking powder predated the modern invention of baking soda I just mentioned, since it likely contained raw, naturally sourced sodium bicarbonate. Yeah, so basically the idea here is you took those two types of ingredients you need for the foamy chemical reaction we mentioned, you mix them up into like a neutral medium of cornstarch or something. Once liquid is added, the ingredients can mix together and whoosh. Actually, as funny as it sounds, like, you know, but after researching this, I had the realization that baking powder is basically just edible bath bombs. Like I said, it's good to know. Maybe someday in the apocalypse, we could repurpose all my bath bombs for baking. Maybe some lavender-scented soda bread. Just gotta watch out for the toy surprise inside. All bread would just be like the king's cake. Whoever gets a toy in their mouth gets to be the lord of misrule and whatnot. Yeah, that would be cool. This original baking powder is what's known as single-acting baking powder. Basically, it has that one chemical reaction that poofs up when you first mix it into your wet ingredients, and that's it. But what if you could make it foam up a second time? Honestly, this next part is really fucking impressive. Like, if that guy who found a way to make baking powder for his wife because she was allergic to yeast is a genius, this next guy is a fucking super genius. Even Norton Horsford, <laughs> which, speaking of names again, holy shit, I don't even know what that sounds like. The dude was American. I guess he had, like, Nordic heritage? Uh, whatever. Either way... Even Norton Horsford, an American food chemist and possibly Viking warrior overlord, came up with the idea to add a second type of acid ingredient to the baking powder, but notably, he found a way to add in an acidic ingredient that would take longer to react in the mixture, thus giving more of a rise in your baked goods. Basically, the way that double-acting baking powder works is you add in your baking powder to the batter, and it gets wet, it combines, and it makes the reaction start going. 
As soon as the wet hits the dry, it starts releasing its carbon dioxide and bubbles up. So technically, you know, this has a little bit of a time limit too. when you think about it. Eventually, the acid and the alkaline, they, they duke it out and they neutralize and that's it. The reaction's over. So with that initial reaction, you got to get your batter cooking pretty quickly. But adding in a second type of ingredient, one that takes longer specifically and requires heat to make it act, it has like a delayed effect to it. You get your cake into the oven, it's already rising from that first action, and then it starts heating up and bam, you get a second rise going in the oven. Honestly, I had no idea what double acting baking powder was before this. I assumed it was just like a buzzword. Like uh, like I said, I, that's really freaking smart that this guy was just sitting there and was like, yeah, you know what, that's nice and it works great already, but what if we just found a magic acid ingredient that can only work during the baking portion so it rises a second time? Good for him. Good for Eben. Anyway. Eben or Eben? Eben, Eben, Eben Norton Horsford. If anyone knows how that name is pronounced, please let us know. If we have any Viking gods amongst us and you're listening to our podcast, drop us a line. We're curious. But yeah, there, there's been a lot of different formulations for baking powder. Some of them use aluminum. Some use cream of tartar. Some people baselessly question the safety of aluminum in food and personal care products, which, uh, guilty. We're a little guilty. Like, I would never lose sleep over it, but I figure if there's alternatives without metal bases in them, then, you know, we tend to lean towards those products. But yeah, to be fair, in general, there's no scientific evidence suggesting aluminum is bad to eat. However, there have been taste tests which suggest that baking powders which include aluminum do tend to give the baked goods a metallic taste. I mean, yeah, that checks out considering aluminum is fucking metal. But regardless, almost all baked goods use either baking soda or baking powder, so it was a big deal at the time having these two new baking ingredients that further opened homemade baked goods up to an even wider audience in the US and Europe. So now we've established the rise of bananas in America and also the rise of baking powder and baking soda. No pun intended. Sure. Well, maybe a little intended. But by the late 1800s, you know, at this point we had everything we needed at the stage was set for banana bread to, well, be a thing. So because of that, let's get nitty and let's get gritty because now we're going into banana bread's history and development. Banana bread in its earliest form was officially created in the 1930s during the Great Depression. As we went over, bananas quickly caught on in the United States after they became readily available in marketplaces. What's not to like? It's it's a sweet, yummy fruit. It's good for you. It's got a fucking built-in handle. You just peel it apart and you can run around with it. It's the most convenient food on the planet. By the, 1900, the early 1900s, they became fixtures of breakfast and dessert for most Americans. Usually as garnishes in desserts, but, you know, sometimes they would be used as main ingredients. In 1906 and 1908, there were some early versions of banana cream pie created in the U.S., which saw some early usage of bananas as an ingredient that flavored a whole dessert instead of just being a novelty fruit. Luckily, the Great Depression wasn't too far behind this. Well, actually not luckily. I don't know why I worded it like that. The Great Depression fucking sucked. It was one of the most tumultuous times in American history, like... We think we have it so bad now with protesters and COVID and Japanese giant hornets and all other bullshit. But hell, at the end of the day, after you're done complaining about all that, you got a nice house or an apartment to go home to where you can keep on complaining. The Great Depression, on the other hand, probably resulted in like more poverty and homelessness than any other uh, event in American history. Like, really, it was bad. 
I pulled out some fun facts to share with you all about the Great Depression so you can get an idea. And by fun facts, I mean uh, nightmarishly saddening facts. So for starters, the stock market just lost almost 90% of its value between 1929 and 1933. <laughs> Think about that. Like, if the fucking Dow Jones goes, like, down 3% in one day, people are fucking, like, jumping out of windows, and they're fucking losing their shit. Everyone's selling everything and panicking. Back then, it lost 90% of its value. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, another one. actually people, like, literally jumping out of windows, Yeah, people too, were that literally <laughs> jumping out of windows back then. Around 11,000 banks failed during the Depression, leaving people with just no savings. Like, again, back in, like, what was it, 2008 when we had the Great Recession now, where, like, you know, we had all the bank bailouts. Like, you know, back then, 11,000 banks. And there were a lot fewer banks back then. And back then, like, it wasn't like you had alternative sources of income. Like, back then, just you go to the bank one day and they're like, sorry, we don't have any of your money. It's just gone. Like, you don't have a credit card. You don't have bitcoins and shit to be like, well, uh, I could find, you know, I can make do. No, it was just your money's gone. It's gone. You're fucked. In 1929, unemployment was around 3%. So that's not bad. Four years later, though, in the heart of depression, it was 25%. Fucking one out of every four people was out of work. That's another fucking thing. Like, think about it now. Like, with with stupid COVID going on, like, what? The the unemployment went up to, like, 11% and people are losing their minds. It was fucking, like, almost two and a half times as bad back then. And that wasn't, like, COVID, like, furlough. Like, you'll get your job back when we open up. That was just like, oh, it's gone. Yeah, sorry. The factory is closed because the... They're, the factory just has no money. Also, a third of the workers kill themselves. Also, the the CEO of the company just fled to fucking Finland or whatever. Uh, yeah. The also another like uh, not so fun fact: the average family income dropped by forty percent during the Great Depression. So basically, just the income of all families just dropped, just was cut in half. <laughs> like, oh my god. Um, yeah, more than a billion dollars in bank deposits were lost to just banks closing. Like we said, like, you would go to the bank and your bank just closed. Like, and back then there was no internet, like, there was no, like, media for you to, like, get around and find out what to do. You just, you went to the bank or you read about the newspaper, like, oh, our bank closed. Oh, well, no more money. And a billion dollars in, like, the 1920s and 30s, that's a lot of fucking yeah, money. A billion dollars a lot now. Yeah. Billions even way more back then. Yeah, uh, hundreds of thousands of people just couldn't pay mortgages and they got evicted. Like uh, 300,000 companies went out of business and millions of people, they migrated away from like the Dust Bowl region, the Midwest, and 200,000 other migrants moved to California. People are just moving around, like trying to find anything. They living in shanty towns and shit. Like hell, life was basically just like a Looney Tunes cartoon back then. You just like legit had people going like dinner and they'd bring a plate to the table with like a, a fish bone, like a single bean that they sliced up into like four pieces. <laughs> oh God. Everyone was probably walking around with those hobo packs and they were like making soup out of tin cans and shit. Eww. Yeah. We, we got it pretty good compared to that. <laughs> we have a reason for bringing up all this like really depressing depression talk. 
because the Great Depression, as shitty as it was, this utter dickhole of a nightmare time period, it also created conditions that directly led to the creation of banana bread, actually. Yeah, as mentioned, bananas tend to go bad pretty quickly, like once they arrive in stores. So after about a week, most bananas aren't worth eating compared to foods that last weeks like apples or oranges or donuts. If you listen to our soda bread episode where we mentioned that we have a pair of donuts from Dunkin' Donuts sitting on our counter that are about three years old, you know that some donuts do actually last a really long time. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they'll be celebrating their third birthday in a couple of months. But yeah, getting back on topic, put yourself in that time period for a second. You're not working, you can barely afford any food. So any food that you do come by, you gotta make every little bit of it count. There's no such thing as throwing food away. Like, that shit ain't an option, considering you quite literally might not be sure the next time you get to eat. It's not like now where you get people that they just fucking throw out leftovers a day after, like, hey, uh, babe, this Chinese food seems like it's getting old. When's it from? Uh, this afternoon? Oh yeah, I better throw it out. Ugh. It fucking drives me crazy how many fucking Americans just throw food away on a daily basis. Like, grow a fucking pear. Eat your damn food unless it's moldy or it smells bad or it's got fuzz growing on it. But yeah, so back then, if people threw their shit away, we'd never have banana bread today. Because yeah, it makes perfect sense. In a time when no one could afford to throw anything away, they found a way to recycle all those disgusting brown limp dick banana fruits. No one is specifically credited with the exact dimension of banana bread, but in 1933, Pillsbury's Balanced Recipes cookbook contained the very first documented recipe. It's probably a similar case to the hamburger where a bunch of people sort of came up with the same idea around the same time, so no one can really take, like, full credit. Yeah, but God bless those poor starving bastards and their ludicrously high unemployment numbers. Somewhere... Someone out there realized they could take those borderline rotten bananas and use them as a base for a quick delicious bread. As mentioned, the decades leading up to the depression, baking got really popular with like the common man in America. Before that, it was just like a, you know, it was a fancy thing you did if you were a baker or if it was like special occasions. But now it's just popping up in, you know, most people's regular everyday kitchens. So naturally, it would make sense that a baking recipe that utilizes food which is basically spoiled would totally catch on. Yeah, I don't know if all recipes use it, but I know at least my mom's recipe uses buttermilk, which seems like another thing that would spring from Depression-era cooking. Like, whether they were using literal buttermilk, like the leftover from making their own butter, or if there was a commercial variety around back then. But, like, buttermilk lasts a lot longer than regular milk. Like, we had buttermilk in our fridge for, like, months, and it was still usable and fine. Yeah, months? I feel like we had it in there for close to a year. Uh, I don't know why, like, quick tangent here, but Aldi, which we love Aldi, for some reason, they just got the idea in their head that buttermilk is only a Christmas time ingredient. Like, I guess because people are baking more around the holidays, but they got a bunch of buttermilk in around, I don't know, the beginning of December, and for some reason, I guess because everybody's stupid, it was before everyone started quarantine baking, like they are now. Uh, I guess people just didn't realize what buttermilk was. And like, ew, gross, buttermilk, I don't know what that is. So they didn't buy it. And uh, yeah, Aldi just had it sitting around. And by the end of December, it went from being like $1.79 per half gallon to, oh, 15 cents. That's not an exaggeration. They had it on clearance for fucking 15 cents. Like, 
we didn't even need that much buttermilk, but we still went in and we bought like six of them. We put some in my mother's freezer. We kept some in our freezer. I don't know what happened to the rest of them. Like, I feel really bad because they probably got thrown out, which is sad because, like we just said, buttermilk lasts a ridiculously long time. Like, it's not literally spoiled milk, but it's just, like, weird, old, like, almost spoiled milk because it's cultured with, like, uh, I think it's cultured with some sort of bacteria or something. Or, like you said before, authentic buttermilk is the leftovers from when you churn butter. But either way, moral of the story... Buttermilk lasts a long fucking time. So, yeah, it would probably be, like, a, a good Depression-era ingredient. Anyway, going back to banana bread, early versions of banana bread, they actually featured a lot of grains, and they, they came out a bit more bread-like than the sweet cake versions that we have today. Stuff like wheat bran was pretty inexpensive, so it was a good way to skimp on all the other ingredients, like flour and sugar. Again, like, we can't forget that everybody's life sucked during the Depression. You can't really expect them to be slapping together these fun, awesome recipes with tons of butter and sugar like we do today. Back then, banana bread wasn't a treat. It was it was a utilitarian food. It was a necessity. But eventually, the Great Depression passed over, and much like how soda bread survived the Irish potato famine, banana bread survived the Great Depression. Actually, it's really interesting to look at the parallels between these two. Both of them are quick breads. They both got popular in, you know, roughly similar time periods. And they both really took off because they helped people survive in a time of national crisis. Kind of makes me wonder with uh, with our own modern day crisis, like, uh, what would the modern day equivalent be with the COVID-19 pandemic? Taco Bell? Those adorable little takeout cocktails in the baggies? Toilet paper? Can you eat toilet paper? I mean, probably if you're really desperate. I don't, I don't know. think it would taste good, though. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what miraculous food dishes come out of this year. Anyway, speaking of 2020 and present day, I think we've just about covered Banana Bread's full history, so let's get modern and talk about people who are doing with it today. So as we said earlier, Banana Bread started off leaning more heavily into the bread side of things. It was drier, airier, it contained bran and other types of grains. Well, modern banana bread tends to be a bit more, shall we say, dessert-like. I consider it a breakfast, since it's similar to muffins, and it often get, does get turned into muffins. Well, yeah, don't get me wrong, banana bread is great, I like banana bread, but, you know, a lot of recipes today are, they're more like a cake. They're a little wetter, a little sweeter, like, you could still eat them as a bread, you could eat them as a breakfast, but it's not quite in the same territory as other quick breads that have that, like, bread quality to them. But yeah, you can still eat a, you can, you can still eat it for breakfast and call it a decent meal. Like we said, there's, like, dozens upon dozens of different recipes out there for banana bread, like, each is as different as the next one. It's a good example of one of those foodstuffs that everyone's got their own recipe for. Frequently, you see a lot of banana bread muffins served up at bakeries, since it's a lot easier to keep them fresh in muffin form than serving individual slices, and entire loaves probably aren't going to sell as much. What, uh, what, what, what exactly is the difference between a banana bread muffin and a banana nut muffin? Like, banana bread frequently includes chopped nuts, so... It gets turned into muffins a lot, too. Yeah, looking into it, it seems like banana nut muffins might contain less sugar than banana bread. But like we said, every recipe is different, so who knows? Yeah, weirdly enough, though, one of the things that I found, it seems like a lot of modern recipes now actually call for baking soda instead of baking powder, which, as we mentioned, baking powder is one of the reasons it got big. 
But uh, I guess it doesn't matter in the long run. It just seems funny that a lot of these sources like said that baking uh, baking powder was like directly responsible for the rise of it. But I, I guess it was a combination of baking powder and baking soda in general, just making you know home baking more popular. But eh, whatever. Speaking of recipes, let's take a look at today's recipe. It comes from Meg's very own mother. So this recipe for banana bread is half a cup of shortening, one cup of sugar, two eggs, three tablespoons of buttermilk, a cup of overripe bananas, two cups of flour, a half a teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of baking soda, and a cup of chopped nuts. So not rocket science here. It's a bread recipe and a quick bread recipe specifically. Start off by mixing the shortening, the sugar, and the eggs, and you beat them until they're smooth. Then you stir in your milk and your mashed up bananas. Sift the flour, baking soda, salt into the shortening mixture, and then stir in the nuts. Pour the batter into three mini loaf pans and let them stand for 20 minutes before baking. Then bake at 350 degrees Fahrenheit for one hour or until a toothpick comes out clean. Yeah, those I like that your mom makes them as like little miniature loaves instead of like one big loaf. They're they're adorable. Yeah, she also makes them as mini muffins a lot, too. I just, like, pop one in my mouth and eat it whole. I'm not crazy about the mini muffin version. I don't know what it is. I think I would like a... I, I, I like the mini loaves, and I like standard muffins. I don't like mini muffins, though. I, I feel like they get very, like, doughy and, like, wet and, like, mushy, I guess. I don't know. I think you're thinking of, like, Entenmann's mini muffins that don't count because they're... A- processed like commercial food no well i know what you're talking about i remember grossly my friends and i would take those stupid little like entman's muffins that came in the little baggies we would take them and we would fucking smash them up in our hands and roll them up into like logs and like eat them like fucking kids do weird dumb shit so but yeah uh no i don't know i I've, i've had like when you've made mini muffins and like your mother's made the mini muffin versions i don't know they're just i prefer the little loaves fair enough but, uh, yeah, moving on, weirdly enough, besides the United States, banana bread is actually really popular in Australia, too. It's a common breakfast staple, and they even grill it on the barbie, which, actually, that sounds really friggin' amazing. I gotta try that. Maybe we can bring some camping next time. Ooh, good idea. <laughs> a common explanation for its popularity down under is because bananas are also really common down there. Bananas are a big, big crop for Australia, where they're grown natively. They're one of the best-selling food products in the country, so I guess it would make sense that any recipe centered around them would be popular. Yeah, I guess it makes sense, too, because before we mentioned, one of the earliest places they were cultivated was in Australia, so that's pretty cool that they, they kind of like turned into like a national fruit for them. Good for Australia. In addition to that, banana bread has actually gotten really popular with the clean-eating crowd because, you know, it kind of straddles the line between a hearty breakfast and a sweet dessert. So you you see, like, a lot of people trying to market it as healthy for some reason. Like, yeah, all right. The fact that bananas are such a major ingredient means by default it contains a lot of moisture and sugar, which makes it adaptable if you want to adjust it to certain lifestyles like the keto diet or uh, if you want to make it vegan. The weird thing is, though, you see a lot of modified versions that substitute the flour for almond flour or omit the sugar completely to label as guilt-free or super healthy, in spite of the fact that most recipes don't even call for a ton of sugar to begin with. Like, as far as those arts go, banana bread is pretty innocuous, especially if you dress it up with nuts and bran. It doesn't really need much more work if you're trying to make it the quote-unquote healthy dessert. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's... uh... 
like the majority of the 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 batter is just bananas. Like it doesn't require that much sugar to begin with. Like I don't know. Uh, then again, I guess as far as breakfast go, it's more on the luxurious end of breakfast foods. But really I don't know. though, come on, French toast. That's true. Waffles. Well, what about if you make banana bread French toast? We've done that before, right? No, we made gingerbread French toast, uh, I think. Okay, close enough. Well, all right, point taken. I don't know, but, like, can we all just, like, can we... Do, do desserts really need to be, like, dolled up and made healthier? Like, can we all just agree that some foods exist a certain way and... And if that way doesn't work for you personally, then you should probably just learn to live without it? Like... The more and more you modify a recipe and the further away you move it from its original form or its normal form, like, it, it gets harder to just call it the same thing. Like, like a, a great example I love to make fun of with this is, is vegan whipped cream, quote-unquote, which is basically just bean water left over from chickpeas, and they, they whip it up into a thick, creamy-looking foam kind of goo. Get, get the fuck out of here. That's not whipped cream. That's a bowl of sadness. And it's not ever going to be whipped cream, no matter how many times you tell people that it tastes better than it looks. Here's a question for you. If dairy is so fucking evil and terrible, why are people trying to imitate it using bean juice? Ugh, whatever. I guess it's just a pet peeve of mine. Like, stop trying to reinvent desserts as healthy. They're not meant to be healthy. They're desserts. They're supposed to be a treat. They're supposed to be a fun reward at the end of the day. They're not supposed to be some sort of well-planned-out utility food. Like, I, I fucking pity all the nerds out there who's, like, so uptight about their diet on, like, an empirical level that they feel the need to cram vitamins and nutrition into a slice of cheesecake. Dude, sit down and fucking enjoy your sweets and stop worrying about it. Eat it in moderation and then go to the gym afterwards and burn it off. You'll be fine. Ugh. Got a little heated there. I can't help it. The war on desserts is a thing that I care very, very deeply about. Sometimes maybe a little too deeply about... Actually, nah, I love chocolate chip cookies, and I would get into a fucking fist fight over it. No regrets. Anyway, that should cover it for today's main course. I hope you guys saved room, as always, for some dessert. Except not healthy dessert, because dessert's not supposed to be healthy. All this talking about bananas making me kind of want bananas, but we're out of them. It's also kind of making me want to play Donkey Kong Country. Let's move on to our premiere of our new column, which we like to call Review Roast. Don't say roast, it's so hot. <laughs> we're roasting in here. Anyway, Review Roast is a recurring column where we browse online reviews of our favorite local restaurants and then we valiantly defend their honor against the villains who have sullied their hallowed name. There's a lot of assholes out there and we don't have time to roast them all, so let's see what we can find. So, there's a really awesome burrito joint here in Patchogue. It's called Mexican Grill 2000. That's its name. It's called Mexican Grill 2000. <laughs> I don't know where the 2000 came from. Maybe it was built in 2000, or they just slapped it on there because 2000 sounds cool. Either way, Mexican Grill 2000, it is the epitome of, like, hole-in-the-wall awesome food spot. I actually discovered it maybe, like, 10 years ago because... If you're not familiar with the area, Patchogue, where we live, is like it's like a, a good hotspot for like restaurants and like dining options. So at one point ten years ago, I believe Mexican Grill 2000 was the highest rated eatery in all of Patchogue. Like 
Patch always got all these like fancy ass restaurants and like places with like rooftop dining and like restaurants that are on the water and with palm trees and shit. But then meanwhile, this crappy little burrito joint in like a strip mall that's like next to a fucking like church and like a, a tattoo parlor was the highest rated one in all of Patchogue. Uh, but yeah, so we went there, we tried it out, and it was fucking amazing. They have really good burritos, they have really good tacos, they have really good quesadillas, they have really good flautas, and they have good enchiladas, they have horchata. Yeah, that's where we discovered horchata. Yeah, the horchata is really good. Horchata, if you never had it, it's basically just like, uh, it's kind of like a Mexican milk drink that has like nutmeg and like cinnamon, I think. It has a bunch of spices in it. It's like sweet milk that, it kind of tastes like cinnamon toast crunch cereal milk afterwards, but yeah, it's really tasty. But so, yeah, we went to Mexican Grill, and, uh... That place, it's one of our favorite places for a date night. It's its small, it's a hole in the wall. There's like there's no like table service. They just bring your food out and yeah, you pay the counter. It's very bare bones, but the food is amazing. So because of that, that's why we're doing it as our very first edition of Review Roast. Because while it does have like 4.5, 4.7, like close to five stars on like most review platforms, there are still quite a few dickholes out there who are trying to say that it's a bad restaurant. So let's take a look at this first one, which comes from Marisi Andrei. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that name wrong, but don't care because it seems like an asshole. Marisi writes, Food is good. Service, however, is horrendous. I came in and tried to pay with an American Express card, and they posted they accepted it, and the woman at the counter rudely takes it and says it's declined. I checked online and it says everything was fine. I ended up paying with another card and all, but if you do not accept Amex or prefer not to take it because of merchant fees, you should not advertise you accept it. One star. How's it the restaurant's fault your credit card got declined? (laughs) This is bullshit because the guy starts the fucking review with the food is good. It's fucking even dumber because he got food. He was able to just get another credit card out and he purchased food and he got it and liked it. One star? Really, bro? God forbid you had to be inconvenienced for, like, eight seconds to, like, pull a different credit card out of your wallet and pay with that one. Jesus, dude. <laughs> oh, my God. Ugh. Not to mention, like, no offense, but, like, um, I feel like if you're using American Express at a hole-in-the-wall Mexican burrito joint, I don't think you belong there. I think you're a douchebag. Uh, this next one-star review comes from David Hartman. He gives it one-stars... He writes, I've been coming here for years, dot, dot, dot. But the last time I ordered, the chicken was so dry, I couldn't even eat it. The first time that I had it, I thought, hey, it happens, but it was even worse. So let me get this straight. This guy's been going there for years. Apparently, it was so good that he'll go there repeatedly for years. Like, his word, I've been coming here for years. And then, like, one or two times, the chicken was dry, and now it gets a one-star review? I guess, I don't know. Dry chicken is that punishable of an offense, I guess. I accept only 100% perfection satisfaction when I'm giving out my fucking Google reviews. But this this isn't even that. This is just fucking bonkers that this guy has a history of going there for years and enjoying it, but then was then has, like, one time the chicken was dry, and now it's like, no, fuck them, they're dead to me. What else do we have here? I have another review from someone on TripAdvisor who says they ordered the fajita burrito. And they said, I ordered the fajita burrito. They spelled fajita wrong, by the way. So they're off to a good start. 
I order the fajita burrito. It was an oil pit. Couldn't even eat it. The meat and veggies we're swimming in on... We're swimming on oil. Would not return here. Um... I've had the fajita burrito, and I believe what's going on here is, uh, KAW0219 here. I believe they're mistaking, like, just juices and shit from vegetables and meat to be oil. I got news for you. All that stuff, all that liquid that's on the fajita, that's not fucking oil. When you heat yeah, up... If there, if there was oil sizzling, yeah. there would be lawsuits constantly. Oh, yeah, because it wouldn't be a fajita, it'd be a grease fire. Think about it. When you fucking take vegetables, which are primarily made up of water, and then you grill them at a high temperature, and also same thing with meat, like chicken and beef, which also has like a decent amount of water content to it, not to mention they're usually marinated, so where do you think that goes? It goes into the fucking pan because that's what good food has. It has juices and liquids to lubricate it and so that it's not dry. So I think this dipshit saw the fajita burrito... They saw that it had liquid coming out of it, and they assumed it was oil because they don't know how to cook. Ugh. Here's another good one from TripAdvisor. This is John D., who gives it two stars. And writes a novel. Yeah, uh, big disappointment. Excited to try for the first time after reading positive reviews. Ordered steak fajita burritos, chicken enchiladas, cheese quesadillas, and jalapeno poppers. We spent $95 and received two free orders of chips and their homemade salsa. Fucking, how do you spend $95 at this place? Yeah, I don't know. We like, go there for date nights and spend like 15 bucks tops for like a burrito and quesadilla. Yeah, I don't know how many burritos they were ordering. The poppers were small, six in an order, and they came out on, they came on a plate. <laughs> the poppers came out and they were small and they came on a plate. Gross. Uh, they came on a plate with some lettuce and sour cream. I'm sure you can do better out of the freezer at your supermarket, although I have a strong sense that maybe where they came from. Which is it, John? Are they worse than a supermarket, or did you think they were from a supermarket, which means that they were what you liked? Whatever. The burritos were a pretty good size, but sadly lacked flavor. That's a lie. My wife, a very positive person by nature, had nothing good to say about the enchiladas. My grandsons, who have had the burritos and poppers before, were happy, but when I was asking what they wanted, they both said their tacos were not good, hence we ordered what we did. I added a star because they liked what they had, but we won't be ordering from there again. I like how this guy just, like, listed everything in, like, super concise, like, bullet points, like, excited to try for the first time, ordered steak fajita burritos with us, like... Uh, uh, honestly, like, uh, it's probably an old white dude. Like, he said they, they went there with their grandson, so, uh, and if they were ordering fucking jalapeno poppers at a burrito grill, like, I don't think this is the place for you. Also, their tacos are good, so, like, they don't know what they're talking about. Like, they're not, like, El Paso taco kit tacos, but, like, they're authentic tacos, and they're yummy. Yeah, I think that's what happens with a lot of people that go to, uh, like, authentic Mexican grills like this, Mexican-American, like, burrito places, is they're used to old El Paso tacos and Taco Bell tacos where it's made in, like, a gooey, soft flour tortilla. And when you get to these places, they serve them frequently in corn tortillas, which is a little bit more authentic. So they're like, oh, this is gross. It doesn't taste like Taco Bell. Yeah, they don't have, like, cheese and sour cream. Yeah, it's so. not overflowing with fucking, it's not piled up with fucking every condiment known to man. Uh, let's hop over to Yelp for a little bit, because now we've got Breezy N from inexplicably San Antonio, Texas? Uh, alright, well, she gave it a one-star review, saying, this is confusing, 
Uh, she left a review on November 5th saying, Food was okay. Way too many peppers and onions. Two burritos, rice and beans, one drink, and $40 later. Very disappointed. She then updated that review uh, two weeks later in November of 2017 to two burritos, rice and beans, one drink, and $40 later. Food was okay. Way too many peppers and onions. Very disappointed. So this chick, apparently she fucking left them a two-star review, then slept on it for two weeks, and then was like, no, I can't live with this. I have to go update it. Took out the part about food was okay, and then changed it from two stars to one stars. Uh, all because too many peppers and onions. Once again, I feel like she's probably used to fucking Taco Bell. Also, I didn't think burritos and rice and beans totaled like $40. No, I don't think they do. A burrito is like $7. Uh, rice and beans is like $6. And a drink is maybe $4. So, yeah, that's not $40. I don't know what the fuck she's... I'm amazed at how many people go in and order so much food. Yeah, their burritos are huge. They're like the size of my forearm. Here's another good example of someone who apparently goes there on a regular basis and then got like, maybe had like a bad night, gives it two stars. We have All American Painting, left two star review on uh, on Google. I go here a couple of times every month and the steak burritos with black beans are usually my favorite. However, I'm afraid to say it could be a hit or miss whether your meal, they spell weather like weather forecast, whether your meal will be greatly flavored and fresh off the grill. Saturday is usually one of those nights when the food, if fresh and tasty, ah, except tonight, meat was so-so, didn't taste like it was freshly made, the rice wasn't fresh either, maybe made yesterday, but definitely not fresh. A little fresh cilantro might have helped. Anyway, I might give it a try once more, but if food isn't right, I'm moving on. Uh, I'd like to point out that that fucking review did not contain a period. That was that was all one fucking sentence with a bunch of commas, and some of the commas have spaces in front of and in back of them. This is similar to the la- the, the one we went before, where it's like, why do you go here a couple of times a month if you don't like it? Or, if you go there a couple of times every month and you like the steak burritos and you get it at a bad time, why, like, that that one bad time is all you need to go out and take to fucking Google to say, this is two stars, it's bad. Fucking people are so negative. Like, how about if you like the food at a restaurant, go out and review it and talk about how great it is instead of going there 15 times and then you have one bum night and it's like, nah, it's the worst, they're, they're, it's the worst place ever. They should be fucking closed. People just like leaving negative reviews rather than positive ones. They do. It probably feels really empowering. Like, ha ha, fuck you, restaurant that took my money and gave me tasty food. I showed you by fucking exercising my Yelp attitude. All right. So there's also JJ on Google. This is a two-star review. Pricing is good. The chicken was too burnt and flavored not like I am used to eating. I prefer more of a Mexican-American style of food, more of a bland taste. This is more of a jerk chicken spice taste, which I know other people really enjoy. The flavors are more authentic Mexican. The service was friendly and fast. The tables are small, and my family of four had to squeeze, squeeze is spelled S-Q-W-E-E-Z, at a two-person table. The complimentary chips were delicious and fresh. It's worth it if you enjoy an authentic Mexican taste. <laughs> so you're recommending it, but you give it two stars. Also, you would admit you like bland food. Yeah. Uh, I don't understand this guy because at the beginning he says, I do not like this place because I like Mexican-American style of food. And this is more of a jerk chicken taste. Which it's not. And then later on says, the flavors are more authentic Mexican. It's good. <laughs> Which is it? I've had jerk chicken before. This does not taste anything like jerk chicken. I don't know what the fuck this guy's on. I, he's probably high. 
They also, also like you said they had a squeezing two person table. Like they have like an even amount of two people tables and four people tables. So like not like all the tables are tiny. Like yeah. there are bigger options. Yeah, uh, that's a trend that I notice a lot of people in like the few negative reviews is people bitching about the place not being nice and like the, they're not being enough tables so and the service not. Yeah, like we said, this place it's a very hole in the wall kind of establishment. Like you could you totally could go and you could sit down and like I said they'll bring your food out to you and that's it like there's no wait service there's no there's nothing like they bring out chips and food and then they go back to the counter and it's like if you're going in expecting it to be like fucking I don't know Maison Olay where they're gonna come out with fucking like sombreros and playing guitars and mariachi band and they like give you a fucking burrito with like sparklers sticking out of it and like kiss your feet on the way out like that's not what it is it's a burrito joint you go in you sit down for fucking 10 minutes, you eat your burrito, and you leave. It's not a place you take the fucking family to go to and, like, you know, bring the kids. We got all the space in the world. Like, honestly, if you're squeezing four people at a two-person table, you're an asshole. Like, leave at that point. Go take your food home. We saw a lot of reviews, too, that mentioned, like, complaining about the service. What service? There's no service. My God. All right, let's let's close it out here because if I read any more of these, then we might just like run out and buy Mexican Girl right now just because uh, I can't I can't take to see the, their names sullied anymore. All right, peeps, with that, we're all set here. Check, please. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Poor Couples Food Guide Deep Dish. Remember, we are in fact the only podcast left where you're more likely to learn about cereal than serial killers search recipes, cooking tips, and other cool stuff on our website, poorcouplesfoodguide.com. And don't forget, you can always write to us at poorcouplesfoodguide at gmail.com to ask for any food advice that you may need. You can also send in any comments, feedback, criticism, hate mail, love mail, chain letters, postcards, and whatever random pondering should pass your little mind. Once again, that's poorcouplesfoodguide at gmail.com. Or if you like, you can hit us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as well. Quick shout out to Kyle, once again, on Facebook for guessing this week's topic. Uh, yeah, this shout out is actually a little bit of a repeat from last week. We realized that if we want people to guess next week's episode, we need to give them more than two days worth of guessing time before we record the episode that they are guessing on. So we're going to be doing this segment a week delayed each episode so people have ample time to figure it out. So anyway, Kyle's another friend of the show who builds some awesome military models. Seriously, he, he wins like awards and shit for them and like regional competitions. His stuff is that good. He shows them off quite a bit on Twitter, so go search for him and follow him. At Copperhead. That's K-O-P-V-E-R-H-E-D. Check out some of his work. He'd really appreciate it. Next week, we'll be serving up our fifth and final episode of this trial run. Of all our foods that we've covered, this next dessert dish is the oldest, more or less being created in the Roman Empire. Its sweet, jiggly nature took it through the millennia, to present day where it's weirdly popular in Japan now. Think you know what it is? Guess in the comments, the mailbag, or literally anywhere on social media, and we'll feature you with your own shout-out in the episode after. Until then, everybody, we bid you a good day and good eats, so stay hungry and keep feeding that brain. And tummy! With me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Poor Couples Food Guide, Meg, a.k.a. Le Skunk, a.k.a. Sniffles. Hello. And together, we are shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want to be shit. All right.